Well, once again, welcome back to Radio Free Acton. Glad to have you along on the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Always good to have uh, new podcast material, and uh, we've had a busy uh, couple of weeks here at the Acton Institute, and um, it's it's nice for a, for a moment. Uh, nothing, not saying anything bad about uh, the Pope, but it's it's sort of nice, nice to get a break from Pope Francis. <laughs> My guest in the other room is is rolling his eyes at me. We'll get to him in just a moment, but we're not going to talk about the Pope on this podcast. We are going to have some podcasts coming up here uh, in the next week or so. Uh, Michael Miller is going to be working with us to uh, talk with a few of our folks on staff about Pope Francis's trip here to the United States and some of the things that he said and did. We're going to have a few reviews of that as well. And, of course, uh, you can check out the Acton Power blog, too, for a lot of information and commentary on uh, the Pope's uh, recent visit. But for today, we are going to turn to a subject that kind of uh, fell off the radar screen while the Pope was in America, uh, but it's still a vitally important subject, and that is the refugee crisis that is currently engulfing the European Union. And with us today in studio is the man who was rolling his eyes at me a moment ago, uh, Dr. Samuel Gregg, who is our Director of Research here at the Acton Institute. Go ahead, Sam, take a shot at me. Why? It's so obvious. Yeah, okay, fine, yeah. We'll move on to Todd because he's nicer. Todd Heisinger is here as well. He is our Director of International Outreach. I think this is your second time here on the podcast with us, and we're glad to have you back. Thank you very much. And uh, what we want to start with, I suppose, is uh, a little bit of background on the European Union and uh, what kind of a union the European Union is. One of the things that's been characteristic of the EU since I think it was nineteen the mid nineteen eighties perhaps maybe uh, a little earlier or a little later nineteen eighty five I think uh, was that essentially a policy of open borders uh, between EU member states and uh, I think we're talking about the Schengen Agreement there am I right on that Todd is that the the proper point at which that happened Yes you are correct and, and the Schengen Agreement was signed in nineteen eighty five so. Mid eighties is also correct, and and essentially that what that was was an effort to open to to make it very much simpler for EU residents to travel around and do business and engage in commerce and whatnot in the EU. EU correct? Yes, the Schengen Agreement basically aimed at and succeeded for the most part in abolishing internal border controls within the European Union. It was signed in Schengen, Luxembourg, a village in Luxembourg, nineteen eighty five, as we said. And it was meant uh, to realize one of the core values of the European, of European integration, which is free movement of peoples within the European Union. Uh, and now it's being called into question by the refugee crisis, by the migrant crisis. Yeah, it's, it's largely held steady. I mean, I know that the, when I traveled to Europe, I, I noticed that there wasn't a passport control going from, say, the Netherlands to Italy and, and vice versa. There was you just kind of walked through. Um, but now, of course, we have uh, a lot of people flooding across the Mediterranean and up out of Syria through Turkey into the European Union looking for refuge. And um, as far as, as I've been able to gather, there's two primary reasons for, for the refugees flooding into Europe right now. One of them is, of course, people escaping from various conflicts, especially right now, uh, the conflict in Syria, which has uh, just devastated that country and is driving hundreds of thousands of people out of their homes. 
Um, but that's, of course, not the only conflict around the world that's driving people away from their homes. But also we have economic refugees, more or less, people who are looking to get out of a, uh, a bad situation economically in their homeland and to move to Europe uh, or somewhere else in the world where they can have a better uh, chance at making a living supporting their families. Um, Sam, can you talk a little bit about what's going on in the world and what's churning up all these refugees? Sure. In fact, many if not a, a majority of the refugees, it appears, that are going into Europe right now are, in fact, economic refugees. At least the studies that I've seen are the type of people who are coming across uh, the border, mainly into countries like Hungary, Croatia, and then making their way to places like Germany, which have very generous uh, welfare states. We, might, we keep, need to keep that in mind. Uh, many of them are not, strictly speaking, refugees as we understand it. They're not necessarily fleeing armed conflict or civil war. Many of them are, in fact, seeking uh, a better life. And in some instances, we have to say, and this is not uh, something that's often said in polite company in some European circles, they're coming because if they know that if they get to, for example, Germany or Sweden, they do get access to considerable welfare benefits. And this is openly talked about now uh, in, by many European governments. In fact, I think the Danish government recently changed some of its policies precisely because they knew this is one reason why many refugees or economic migrants were coming to the country. Uh, so much so that many of them now specify that they don't want to go to Denmark precisely because the benefits aren't as good there as they are in some other countries. Incentives. So this incentives do have something to do with this. And uh, I think that many European governments are going to have to look at this at some level, despite the fact that many of them are very, very reluctant to engage in any serious revamping of their welfare states. That said, there are a good number of these people who are coming because of violent conflict in the Middle East. Uh, and of course, they know that once they get through those initial borders, that the Schengen Agreement means that they have relatively free movement between these countries. Although it's my understanding that at different points, Germany and Austria have actually suspended Schengen for periods of time as a way of trying to control the flow of refugees. So on one level, you have this rhetoric that you hear from people like Angela Merkel, which is, we need to welcome these people, we need to help them, etc., etc. But on another level, there's a certain degree of realpolitik going on here, that they can't just take everyone, uh, that this does present some serious challenges when it comes to things like integration. And it also highlights, I think, some of the problems which everyone knows Europe has, especially Western Europe, with the whole multicultural project, which in many countries has been a disaster, particularly in countries like France and Belgium, where you have large numbers of ethnic minorities, mainly Muslim, who basically are living in ghettos. And in Eastern Europe, of course, the reaction is quite different. They're looking at many of these Western European countries and saying, we don't want that. And you're seeing this conflict now opening up between countries like Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary. In fact, many of these countries voted recently uh, against this proposal of the EU to basically distribute all these different refugees throughout Europe. These European, Eastern European countries voted against it and were basically overruled because they're looking at Western Europe and saying, in fact, I think it was the Hungarian prime minister, Viktor Orban, who said, uh, we've seen how multiculturalism works out in your part of the world. We're not sure we want that here. I, I, I find it interesting, and you mentioned Nagel Merkel uh, mm. of Germany, who uh, – 
just within the last couple of weeks, uh, Germany has has sort of uh, reversed itself a couple of times, it seems, on whether their border is going to be open or closed. But one of the things that Merkel said uh, when this crisis was at its peak a couple of weeks ago was that, A, Germany was going to take as many refugees as they could, basically. And she actually did say, you know, the B point is that uh, this is going to really change our country. Um, and that's something that I, I, I think is, is worth looking at. We're, we're obviously uh, genuine refugees. People who are genuinely fleeing conflict and, and people who are in, in dire need. We want to be compassionate. We want to help them. But what, are the, what is the likely outcome, especially in Europe? Sam, you've talked a lot about Europe and its cultural issues that, that have been developing over the years and the problems that have sprung from those. But... Um, what is the long-term impact of absorbing all of these refugees into a country like Germany? Well, I tend to be in favor of immigration. I'm a migrant myself, and when people move to a country, it's usually a good sign for that country because it tells the people that that country is doing comparatively well compared to other countries. But really, it's a question of how you approach the whole issue of integration. And it seems that there's essentially two very broad approaches. One is assimilation, which is more or less what we have in the United States. If you come to the United States, you're expected to become an American citizen. It doesn't mean that you disown your heritage. It doesn't mean that you pretend you didn't live somewhere else, but you're expected to become American and behave in certain ways and effectively assimilate to the quote-unquote American way of life. The other policy is multiculturalism, whereby a society tries to maintain a situation whereby there are effectively a range of different, different ethnic slash religious cultural formations, living side by side to a certain extent, working together to a certain extent, but also to a certain extent being apart from one another. And this is really, I think, where it comes down to the to the why for many of these Western European countries in particular. They've got to decide whether they want assimilation or whether they're going to continue along this multiculturalist path. And some countries, I think, are better equipped to do this than others. Ironically, a country like France, which has these very large effectively ghettoized Muslim uh, segments of the population, has always had the, the, the mindset that when you come to France, you become French. You're expected to be a French citizen. You're expected to adopt the idea of laicite, et cetera, et cetera. And yet in practice, that's not what France has done. So the other thing, of course, which uh, I've talked about with Todd a little bit, is that assimilation implies that there's something to assimilate to, that you agree about what it is that you're supposed to be assimilating to. Well, it seems to me that in many European countries, and this is probably more true of some continental Western European countries, there's massive disagreement about what it is to be a European and what it is you're supposed to assimilate to, because these are countries that in many respects are very, very distant from their religious foundations, in some respects deeply hostile to their religious foundations. And religion, as I like to say, or the cult, is always at the heart of culture. So it seems to me that unless... Western European countries are willing to affirm in some way this broad Judeo-Christian slash Enlightenment heritage and see this as a good thing, then they're going to struggle with the assimilation thing because no one will be really clear about what they're supposed to assimilate to or even think that assimilating to this is a good thing in the first place. Todd, I want to turn to you. Uh, one of the things that Sam mentioned is the 
the disagreement that that exists within Europe about what a European actually is. And we've talked before on the podcast about one of the problems that the European Union has as a union is that all of these different countries and these different unique societies have been brought under this big umbrella organization headquartered out of Brussels. And when Brussels tries to influence the entire continent, there's pushback from individual countries that say, well, that's not what we want. That's not what we... Uh, that's that's not what we intended. We want to maintain our culture. Um, I'm just curious, you being a longtime observer of Europe and, and the European Union, with all those tides pulling back and forth within the EU, just in general, and now with this crisis added on, how do you see the European Union moving forward here? What is the what is the game plan that you can uh, kind of lay out for us? I don't think that the Europeans have a game plan, and that's, of course... The big problem with this whole crisis is that there's really no plan in term for, on the part of the Europeans on how to deal with this influx of refugees, migrants. Um, and uh, an important part of that, too, is that, and Sam was referring to this, is that there's kind of contradictory attitudes going on at the same time. Um, on the one hand, people want to bring in refugees who are truly in need of some place to stay. On the other hand, they want to reduce net migration to their countries. And they're worried about this influx of people who are not from their countries and who bring different cultures. And European politicians are struggling to kind of respond to these contradictory desires of their population. And so far, they haven't had much success in it. I think it's important to say, though, too, that it's it's very easy to say the Europeans aren't dealing with it. Um, it's it's a very hard thing to deal with. So I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. Well, I, I think as Americans, uh, we we can say too that our country struggles with this as well. Uh, we we certainly aren't uh, alone in having <laughs> immigration problems uh, that we're dealing with in the world. Uh, the EU struggling now with this immigration crisis, this migrant crisis. Uh, on top of what's been going on, for instance, in Greece, uh, with the the uh, the problems that they're having maintaining uh, the monetary union, uh, is the long term prognosis for the European Union still good, or uh, are are we looking at more hard times coming? The European Union is definitely in crisis, and of course has been um, during this entire. Debt, sovereign debt crisis with Greece and other countries, mainly with Greece, now continuing with the refugee crisis. Um, and it all go- comes down to that unanswered, unanswered question, what is the EU and what do we want the EU to become? And as you were saying, Europeans are conflicted about that. They don't really know what they want the EU to be. There's basically two models one is sovereign nation states who are who cooperate closely economically and and politically and the other is kind of a supranational entity called the European Union that exercises significant sovereign powers over the nation states from Brussels that's already happening it's happening to an extent that most european voters i would say are not content with um and it's leading to things like the very good possibility that uh, 
Britain might decide to leave the European Union. There's going to be a referendum in Britain sometime before the end of 2017, which is going to where the Brits are going to vote in or out of the European Union. Right now, the latest poll shows that more people have said we want out of the European Union than those who want to stay in. Interesting times in Europe. Uh, one final thought uh, before we go, because this is an Acton Institute podcast, it, it occurs to me uh, it, it might be valuable to point out that the people who are flooding into Europe and, frankly, into the United States right now um, are people who are coming from nations, it seems to me, that do not embrace uh, principles like um, human freedom and liberty, the rule of law, um, countries that don't have uh, market economies that function well and provide economic opportunities. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Uh, there's no one fleeing Australia or Canada to come to the United States or Europe. People go when they're migrants. They go to places that they think there's stability and where they're incentivized to go. And the incentives can differ. If the incentives are, I get a welfare check from the German government, that's a bad situation for the host country to be in. If, on the other hand, the incentive is, I go to this country and I get access to opportunities and institutions that enable me to flourish under my own volition, then you get a different type of migrant to a certain extent. So I think a lot depends upon the, let's call it the cultural institutional settings of a given country. And these things create incentives. It sounds very crude to talk like that, but that really does matter when it comes to uh, where people go and why they go where they go. It also tells us that unless there is a significant transition in many of these countries from which people are fleeing towards the type of arrangements that you're talking about, which leaves open the whole question of whether entire cultures are actually capable of doing that in the first place, and I have my doubts in that regard, until that is fixed at some fundamental level, then I think the question of migration, economic migration and refugees is only going to go further up the ladder of serious challenges that governments in the West are going to be dealing with over the next decade or so. Uh, Sam and Todd, thank you so much for joining me today on Radio Free Act. And I should point out, uh, Todd, you have a book coming out relatively soon, hopefully, uh, on the European Union, correct? That is correct. Working title is New Totalitarian Temptation, uh, Global Governance and the Crisis of Democracy in Europe. And the thesis of the book is that what really motivates the European Union is the ideology of global governance, which is the idea that via supranational governance above the nation state, you can regulate the world in such a way that will bring peace and prosperity um, and, and, and bring an end to wars between nation states. My argument is that that's a utopian idea um, and that it's not going to work, but on the way to not working, it's already causing a lot of damage. Um, there's a huge democratic deficit in the European Union, and the fact that democracy is weakening in the European Union is also very bad for the transatlantic alliance. And Sam, I, I believe, if if I'm uh, correct here, I saw you have a, a new book cover that you posted a few days ago. Uh, so you've got something in the works, too. Yes, I have. It has nothing to do with this subject whatsoever. <laughs> it's well, do, yeah. It's actually to do with um, uh, really how 
banking and financial systems can actually be developed in ways that serve the common good instead of behaving in the very dysfunctional way that I think people from the right and the left more or less agree is the way that the financial systems of the world are functioning right now. But that's going to be coming out in, I think, uh, January, February next year. So it'll be great to come on and talk about that in more detail. We will do that for both of you. And uh, Todd Heisinger, Director of International Outreach, Sam Gregg, uh, Director of Research here at the Acton Institute. Thank you, guys. Well, folks, we've got some events coming up that I want to let you know about before we uh, say goodbye on this podcast. And uh, some good stuff on our calendar. Again, again, a packed-up events calendar for the uh, fall and winter of 2015 here. And uh, coming up this week, Thursday, this is October 1st. Uh, you might be able to squeak into this one yet if you go to actin.org slash events. Uh, the Conservative Heart is the newest book by Arthur C. Brooks, the head of the American Enterprise Institute. He's coming to town to uh, deliver an Acton Lecture Series address with that same title, The Conservative Heart. He'll be in here on Thursday of this week. Uh, again, if you want to register for that, quickly do so at uh, acton.org slash events. Our annual dinner is coming up as well, October 21st at the DeVos Place uh, Ballroom in downtown Grand Rapids. Beautiful facility. That's where we hold uh, at least portions of Acton University. And this year we need a bigger facility for our annual dinner as well. So we've moved it over to DeVos Place. It'll be an evening with Reverend Robert A. Sirico in celebration of Acton's 25th anniversary. It's a big milestone for us. We're celebrating it in a big way this year, and we invite you to join us. Check it out at acton.org slash events. That's October 21st. And personally, I'm really looking forward to this one. October 29th uh, at 1130 uh, right here, the doors open at 1130 at the Acton Building for uh, the Acton Lecture Series. Jay Nordlinger of National Review is going to be with us, and he's going to be discussing his new book, which is entitled Children of Monsters. It's an examination of the lives of children of dictators. Should be a very interesting talk, and I'm looking forward to getting him uh, here in the Acton Studios for a podcast as well. Hopefully we can make that happen. But Again, acton.org slash events. Lots of good stuff on the calendar uh, coming up in Grand Rapids and elsewhere. And acton.org slash events is the place to go to find all of it. Thank you once again for joining us today for Radio Free Acton. It's always a pleasure to bring a podcast to you. Uh, and uh, please do uh, tell your friends if there's anyone that you know who might enjoy listening to some podcasts from the Acton Institute. We'd, we'd really appreciate it if you would pass along the links to Radio Free Acton. And, of course, check out the Acton Power blog. We get a lot of news commentary and uh, opinion there every day from a whole bunch of different authors, uh, all uh, writing from an Acton point of view. And uh, that's a point of view, I think, worth hearing. So blog.acton.org is the address. Once again, thank you. Uh, so glad you came along to listen to us today. And we will talk again on Radio Free Acton. Have a good one, everybody.